Well, today, as you know, it's Easter Sunday. All around the world this morning, churches are singing. People in the pews are singing things like, Hallelujah, Rejoice, He is Risen. But if you were to ask a lot of people, what are you so happy about? What are we singing about? They wouldn't really be able to tell you. They know it has something to do with Christ's resurrection from the dead. But a lot of people just think the message is this. Jesus was a nice guy. He unfortunately got crucified. That was a horrible, ugly thing. But God raised him from the dead and now he's alive. And the good guy came back to life and it's wonderful. That's not it. Yeah, he was a good guy, and he did die, and he did rise from the grave. But the good news is not just that the good guy is alive again. If, if that were the good news, I don't know that that would be much to sing about. Now, one reason people don't understand the good news of Christ's resurrection is because they don't first understand the bad news. For you to truly rejoice over the good news that Jesus came out of the grave alive, you need to first understand the bad news. All right? So here's, here's the good news I want you to understand. All right? That Jesus died for our sin. And his death on the cross fully paid for our sin. That's the good news. The bad news that you need to understand and really believe is you're a sinner who deserves to go to hell. A lot of people don't buy that. But until you buy that, the good news doesn't make any sense. Kind of like if I was a doctor and you came in. Should I back up a little bit here? Okay. Oh, look at that. Uh, no, shining. Um, <laughs> If you came to me as a doctor, Elvis is a doctor, right? Are you a doctor? You're not a, what are you? He's a massage therapist. Elvis has left the building. No, okay. He's, he's kind of like a doctor. All right, now, if you came to me as a doctor and I said, I have good news. Your cancer has a cure. And you looked at me and said, what cancer? Nobody ever told me I had cancer. And if I told you, well, I didn't tell you that because I was afraid that would scare you away. I never told you. But I have good news. You would think I was a quack, right? What, what kind of a doctor gives a cure without first telling the patient that they have a disease? A lot of people are in church this morning singing about the good news, but they really don't know what What's so good about it? Because they've never understood the bad news. The bad news is every one of us on our own deserves the eternal wrath of God. Do you believe that? You know, the book of Romans is a 16-chapter book in the Bible that explains in detail the good news of the gospel. But it all hangs on verse 18 of chapter 1. You need to understand this. It says, here's your problem. The wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you are a sinner, the wrath of God is hanging over your head. Now, some people read that and they go, oh yeah, God's wrath is over the head of really bad people, but not me. Well, as you go on and you understand the book of Romans, by the time you get to chapter 3, it says this, as it is written, none is righteous. So if you were thinking you, you're the exception, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. And here's the summary of the first part of the book of Romans. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, a lot of people look at it this way. Well, there's really, really bad people like Hitler. And there's these really super good religious people, but most people are average. And who's going to go to hell? Who's under the wrath of God? Those really bad Hitler types, but everybody else is pretty safe. Is that what that says? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, and the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Lose the idea that I'm in the mushy middle or I'm even pretty good. Therefore, I don't need to fear the wrath of God. In fact, because you can't understand the good news until you understand the bad news, here's what I want to do in the time that remains. I want to give you four kinds of people who don't fear the wrath of God. There may be some in the room today, okay? Four kinds of people who don't fear the wrath of God. And I've given them little nicknames, all right? First person I'm going to call Calvin Comparison, okay? And I don't claim that I spell properly, so if you see a a typo... Um, enjoy it. Okay. <laughs> Calvin Comparison says, why would I fear the wrath of God? Compared to other people, I'm a pretty good person. Right? In fact, I would hazard to guess that that's most people's attitude. Why would I fear God's wrath? Compared to others, I'm pretty good. Now, that would be great if we were going to be judged on Judgment Day on a scale of how good we're doing compared to others. The problem is, on Judgment Day, we're not going to be compared to one another. We will be judged according to God's perfect law. Whether you have kept his perfect law perfectly. You know, students love it when the teacher says, man, it was a really hard test. So rather than grading on a straight scale, you know, 90 and above is an A, 80 and above is a B, we're going to grade on a curve. They love that. In fact, I went to Northern Illinois University back in the Stone Age before there was computers. Drove my horse out there, right? (laughs) And um, my major was business, and I remember this business law class that I took. And, uh, boy, that was a hard class, and we had a really hard test, and everybody walked out like we failed. And we went back the next time, and he passed out the papers, and I got a 56 out of 100. And I'm like, oh, I failed business law. I started thinking about 
homelessness, and this is horrible. And he said, well, it was a really hard test, so we're going to grade not on a straight scale, but on a curve. So we need to figure out the bell curve, and he put a curve on the board, and he said, all right, let's figure out the highest grades. The highest grade in the class, and he wrote 56. I went from homeless failure to class valedictorian, right? So, so being graded on a curve is a great thing because you're not being graded according to a perfect standard. You're just, you just have to be better than the next guy. And you can find people that you're better than. Even in prison, they look down on one another, right? So um, the bad news is this. Here's the standard by which you will be judged. If you are not in Christ, if you are not trusting in Christ, here's the standard by which you will be judged. Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you want a God whose standard was anything less than perfection? Would you want a kind of an approximation God? He's not worthy of worship. A perfect God has a perfect standard, and on judgment day, apart from Christ... You must be perfect. Here's another verse that says the same thing. In Galatians 3.10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law. What that means is, all of you who are relying on keeping God's law to get into heaven. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You're cursed apart from Christ. If you think you're going to earn your way into heaven by keeping the law, here's the rules. You must keep them perfectly, 100% of the time, your entire life, not only in deed, but in thought and in motive. So how are you doing? Are you doing perfectly? If you're not in Christ on judgment day, you will be sent away if you're basing your salvation on you being pretty good compared to other people. That's bad news. Don't worry, there's good news coming. But if you think you're going to heaven because you're pretty good based on your comparison to others, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. Let me give you another person who doesn't fear the wrath of God. I call him Roger Religion. Okay, Roger Religion goes to church, was raised in the church, serves in the church, ushers in the church, teaches Sunday school, is on the church board, he says, no, I'm not perfect, but I am religious, and my religion will get me into heaven. You know, Jesus reserved his harshest condemnation for religious people who were trusting in their religion instead of trusting in him to get, to get into heaven. Here's what he says. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with this. On that day, on Judgment Day, many... Not, not just a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. So they, they're singing about him as Lord today. Hallelujah. They're singing all the songs, Lord, Lord. Right? They're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's preach. And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. So they're not just sitting in the pews. They're actually out doing ministry in the name of Jesus. And what's he going to do? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
you were very religious. But there's a huge difference between being religious and truly trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Religion is something you do. Believing in Christ is a thing you believe, you trust in. Huge difference. You know, a lot of religious people read their Bible. Jesus pointed to the people of his day who were were scholars, and he said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They were experts in the scriptures, but they weren't trusting in the Savior. You see, here's the problem. Religious people think they're pretty good. And they're trusting in their religious works to get them into heaven. And that keeps them from saying, I'm a sinner who deserves eternal damnation. Their religion makes them self-righteous, which is the opposite of true faith. True faith says, I am not righteous. I need a Savior to save me. So, Roger, religion does not fear the wrath of God. He's trusting in his religion to get him into heaven. Let me give you another guy. I call him Peter Prodigal. Remember the story of the prodigal son Jesus told in Luke 15? And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Basically, I know you haven't died yet, but drop dead. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Give me my share of the inheritance. Leave me alone. That's a picture of us. It's a picture of us saying, God, thanks for the the body and the life and the stuff in America and a bank account. I'll take it from here. You kind of stay out of my life because you cramp my style. That's the prodigal, okay? So the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Peter Prodigal. The prodigals are the nearsighted people living for today. Living for the moment. They may even believe in the existence of God. They may even believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave. Their attitude is just not now. I need to enjoy my life, and if I become a Christian, it's going to cramp my style. Peter Prodigal says, I'm just not interested now. Any of you see the movie... um, God is not dead. Maybe you see that? Okay. I, I know it's not a perfect movie. I really liked the movie. If you haven't seen it, go see God is not dead. And uh, there's a character in the movie. He's the high roller. He's the finance guy who makes a lot of money, drives a nice car, but he's cruel. In fact, his girlfriend, whom he's engaged to, gets cancer, and he drops her because he didn't have time for cancer. His mother... Uh, is dying and has dementia. 
And the sister says, why don't you go visit mom? No, she won't even recognize me. Finally, he gives in and he goes and visits his mother. His mother doesn't recognize him and she's kind of in a comatose state. And this is what he says. He's mad at God and he's talking to her, but she's not even really listening. And and his name is Mark. He says, you prayed and believed your whole life. Never done anything wrong. And here you are. You're the kindest person I know. I'm the meanest. You have dementia. My life is perfect. Explain that to me. He's a prodigal. His whole thing is, I'm healthy. I'm rich. That's all that matters. God didn't give me that. I gave me that. And look at you. You believe in God. You've got dementia. I don't believe in your God. And at that moment, the mother becomes lucid. And it's as if God is speaking through her to him. And she says, sometimes the devil allows people to live a life free of trouble because he doesn't want people turning to God. Their sin is like a jail cell, except it is all nice and comfy. And there doesn't seem to be any reason to leave. The door's wide open till one day time runs out and the door slams shut and suddenly it's too late to get out. And then she goes back into her state of dementia and she says, who are you? She got it right. Peter Prodigal is too busy living for the fun. And it may not even be a wildly sinful life. It's just a life of suburbia, taking care of your lawn, making money, enjoying sports on TV, but not interested in turning to Christ. That's a person that maybe they're even aware of the wrath of God. Just, I don't want to deal with it right now. That's Peter Prodigal. But then, in the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember the older brother? I call him Oscar the older brother. Okay? The prodigal, it says he comes to his senses and he turns back and he goes back to his father and his father sees him and he runs to him and he embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, puts a robe around him. They kill the fatted calf and they have a big party. Now, let me ask you a question. Who... Who in the story of the prodigal son was most upset that the younger brother returned home? No, the fatted calf. (laughs) But second in line was the older brother. The older brother did not like the fact that the father ran to him and embraced him and had a party. In fact, it says, but he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I think the NIV says, I've slaved for you. And I, look at this, I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I never disobeyed you. Oscar, the older brother, this is the Pharisee. This is the self-deluded legalist who actually thinks he is righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And when God shows anyone else grace, when God forgives another person, they get mad. Because there they are living this hard life of keeping God's rules and somebody else gets in by grace. They do not like that. My kids are involved in a Bible study at school. And one of my sons was teaching the Bible study once. And he asked a real simple question. He said, now, is there anybody here who's perfect? And the obvious answer is no. One girl raised her hand. I said, was she kidding? No, she's just like this really good, good grades, very religious person. But she thinks she's perfect. If you're Oscar, the older brother, and you actually think you're perfect, you're self-deluded. You know, there was another guy in the Bible who thought he was perfect. His name was Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. But before he came to Christ, here's his self-assessment. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If anyone thinks he's good enough in his own ability to earn his way to heaven, it was me. Okay? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now look at this. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. His self-evaluation before he came to Christ was that he thought he was blameless. Right? But then, he hears about Christ. And Christ opens his eyes and shows him that he may have been keeping the law externally, but his heart was black. Let me give you a little test. Have you ever lied? What's that make you? Have you ever stolen anything? Hey, it was just tax season. Right. Have you ever lusted? Jesus says if you've lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. Come on, we're all a bunch of lying, thieves, adulterers. Right? But the Pharisee says, oh no, I, I've not, I, I don't lie. I don't lust. I, don't, I, I, am, I am pretty perfect. Paul thought that until God opened his eyes and he trusted in Christ. Now look at what it says. For his sake, for Christ's sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now look at this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Here's what happens. When you truly trust in Christ, your sin is nailed to the cross and paid in full, and Christ's perfect life is given to you. So you know what? If you were to ask me, are you perfect? Here's my answer. In and of myself, no. You can ask my family they can tell you, I am far from perfect. Can I get an amen? Thank you for that witness. In God's eyes, because I'm trusting in Christ, my sin has been dealt with and paid for, and his perfect righteousness is given to me, so God sees me 
for the sake of Christ, is perfect. And I am going to heaven. Not based on how good I am, based on how good he is. That's the good news of the gospel. Right? If you are outside of Christ, you must pay the full debt yourself. And you can never do that. Now, let me close with one story that illustrates um, how good it is to hear those words, paid in full. When um, we were first married 25 years ago, right? Yeah. (laughs) First church was in Clintonville, Wisconsin. Anybody ever been to Clintonville, Wisconsin? Have you? Okay. Um, We can talk about why. (laughs) Passing through to Green Bay, right? Yeah. A little town of 3,000 people. It was in a little church. And that's really, I didn't have a computer. And one night I needed to run to the church to make some copies on the copy machine. And when I married my bride, I not only got this wonderful woman, but I also got her Toyota, which was like an army tank. Was Was it a Camry? Camry, yeah. Um, Now, the thing about this Toyota Camry is if you took the key out and left it in drive, it was like you were leaving it in neutral, okay? So I drive to the church, and there was this ramp that you drive up on to go in uh, the front door. So the car's parked. I left it in drive. I go in. I'm making copies, And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door, and I go, hey. And I figured it was a poor damsel in distress who might have needed to to hear the gospel. I said, come on in. What troubled you, young lass? And she goes, "Um, was that your car that just smashed into my house? And I go, no. (laughs) Because my car's right, and it wasn't there. It had rolled down the ramp backwards across the 50-yard parking lot, across the street, up her driveway, and took out her entire garage. The roof of the house was hanging like this. Now, I had never been in an accident. I'd never used insurance. I'd never had a ticket. And I'm standing there going, I just took out a house. And I knew that I had insurance, but I thought that I was insured, not my car. And the car just went on its own. So I'm thinking, that's got to be $50,000, I'm, so, I'm thinking homelessness again, right? <laughs> so that night, I did not sleep well. And I got up the next morning, and I called the state farm guy, and I explained what happened. And after he had laughed his head off, he said, don't worry, paid in full. If you are in Christ, don't worry, it's paid in full. Have you trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord? Let's pray. Worship team, come on up.